Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson. I've battled breast cancer five times in the last 23 years. I'm also a motivational speaker, speaker mentor, and the published author of The Hat That Saved My Life. Hi, I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 25-year breast cancer survivor, certified life coach, and the author of my book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. Becky and I are also the co-founders of Breast Friends. And, you know, Sharon, before we get going, I want to just talk just very, very briefly about the word love. Um, love is one of those things, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a line you hear in movies all the time. You make me want to be a better man, you know, right? You're, you're in love with something, right? Well, love also means that when you love something that we strive to become better than we are at whatever that is. And our guest today um, is no exception to that. And I'm going to tell you why at, at the end of his introduction. So our guest is a specialist in his field, and he is super special to breast friends. First, he's renowned in the field of immunology. He speaks all over the country. He's also a medical oncologist with Providence, the Franz Cancer Center in Portland, Oregon. He's a board member of Breast Friends. We love him so much. He's, we invited him on, and we were so happy when he said yes. And he is also personally my oncologist. Um, Dr. David Page appeared on this show in March of 2016 when he discussed metastatic disease and introduced us to the clinical trials involving immune therapy, something he's very, very um, connected with. And the reason I talk about love is because he's been through, I don't know how many years of school, I'm sure he'll tell us in a minute, but he knows pretty much all there is to know, except he knows he doesn't. So he's going back to school to learn even more about this situation and about immune therapy and all of this. So he's just a really, truly amazing person. And we invited him back because a lot has changed since then. And he's back. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Three years. It's amazing how much has changed in that field. It felt so new back then. And now it's like, you just hear it. It's all over the news. It's on television all the time. But he is back to talk to us about what's going on in this incredible field. So please welcome Dr. David Page. Thank you for that introduction. Jeez, it's been three years. Um, I know. <laughs> I find it hard to believe, but uh, we've got some time today to really celebrate everything that's changed over this past three years. So um, thank you so much for giving me that opportunity. Well, um, how, did you, how did you want me to start today? Well, I'm going to ask you some questions, and you're going to answer them. <laughs> okay. And and then Sharon's going to ask you some questions, and then if there's anything we forget to ask you, you're going to just tell us. So, um, so but let's first remind our audience a little bit about your background, your family, your hobbies, you know, all of that, where you came from, you know, when you, you when you were first recruited out here to Portland. So just kind of give us a little background on that stuff. Sure. Um, I actually grew up in a small town upstate New York, and um, I guess one of the things that I remember the most about being a child was living right next to a diner that was owned by my family. So I always thought that I would be a chef, um, but that didn't happen because when I went into college, I really fell in love with the field of oncology. So learning about cancer, um, 
learning how it grows, why why people get cancer, how we can help those people that do develop cancer. And one of the things that struck me the most, and I can remember the first time I learned about it in school, was how the best way to get rid of cancer is your own body. So using your own immune system to actually fight those cancer cells as they develop. It turns out that everyone has cancer in their body. Every day of your life, you have cancer cells trying to grow, and your immune system clears those. So that's what I committed my life to, really. I chose not to be a chef. Um, went to You are a good college. cook, though. David, you are a good cook, so, It's it's my favorite uh, pastime, that's for sure. But, yeah, so I went to um, uh, Chicago for college and uh, really enjoyed my time there, but then I ventured to a big cancer center in New York called Memorials where I can learn how to treat cancer using the immune system. And then I fell in love again with the city of Portland, uh, which is just a wonderful place to live food and uh, adventure environment is just beautiful here and we had a real need for doctors that do research in oncology and breast cancer so I joined a group of doctors here so that I can really devote my life to that. So I think today is um, really an opportunity to tell you more about how we can use your immune system to kill cancer and to teach a little bit about research as well um, in what it means to be participating in research. Wonderful. Well, before we get into, you know, totally into immune therapy and the trials, let's do a little bit of basic 101 um, because we do have a lot of listeners across the globe. And I think a lot of times people get interested in our show when maybe they're just diagnosed. And so there's just so many um, new things that you have to learn. So let's talk first about metastatic disease. Can you tell us what that is, what does it mean specifically? Because I, I know a lot of these trials are connected to metastatic disease. So why don't we start with that? What, how do we know when cancer has become metastatic and what does that mean to, to a patient? Yeah, well, I have to admit to you that doctors and patients alike, uh, there could be confusion because the word metastatic could actually mean a number of things. Uh, when you think of it as a of a verb or an action. So if something metastasizes, that's an action. The cancer metastasizing, what that means is cancer is moving from one place to another. So moving for, from where it started and learning how to grow in another location. So that's really what metastasize means. Uh, now, a cancer can move from one location to another. Uh, one example of that is if you had breast cancer in the breast, a, a lump, and it moved to the lymph node underneath your arm and your armpit, that would be considered metastasizing. But that's not metastatic disease. So now there's two different definitions I'm trying to flesh uh-huh. out here. Okay. So now when someone says, I have metastatic disease, or another way of saying that is, I have stage 4 breast cancer, that means something a little bit different. What that means is that the cancer has learned how to metastasize or spread to other parts of the body, so not under the arm, not in the breast, not in other parts of the breast, but in, for example, the liver or in other organs. So that means that the cancer has learned how to grow in other organs in the body besides the breast and besides underneath the arm. 
the okay, main so, difference. So, David, I mean, Dr. Page, yeah. excuse me, we have such a personal relationship here. <laughs> I'll probably call you David from time to time, but out of respect for your position, I'm going to try to remember to call you Dr. Page. Um, so, using me as an example, mine has metastasized to my lungs or my lung on the right side in, in the lining of my lung. Is that metastatic disease? That no, would surprise be because yeah. we know. <laughs> I think you're right. That's metastatic disease. So when it has spread from like breast to your lung, I would use the word metastatic. Um, and I think to be more precise, you can say it's stage four because then you wouldn't confuse it with uh, cancer being in the lymph node under the arm, which, yeah, you could also say that that's metastasized. So it gets right. confusing. It does. So basically one definition is a verb, and that's when it begins that that movement, and the other is a noun when you're... I guess a noun. Wouldn't that be a noun <laughs> when you're describing the the condition? I guess. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think we I think we get it. So, um, thank you because I know there's a lot. I mean, I've had people call me in tears and tell me that oh, I'm metastatic because it's in my lymph nodes and scary. That is very very scary, especially when you're first going through it. But but we know that there's different degrees of that, and um, and a lot of women who have breast cancer have it in their lymph nodes, and you know, and there's there are treatments for that. Right. Well, I think that's why I was a little bit obsessing about that because when you have breast cancer under the arm in a lymph node, that's curable. That could be removed with surgery. That could be treated with radiation. And that's really part of the whole package of being a newly diagnosed breast cancer patient. Uh, when, you're, when your doctor says, we're going to cure you with surgery and with radiation, with chemo, a lot of times those patients do have the cancer that had spread under the arm. And we have to really um, respect that there's a difference between that and if it's in other parts parts of the body, if it's in the lungs and the liver, we start to think more about using medicines uh, to treat those patients because doing a surgery isn't going to be helping the rest of the body. We need to protect the whole body in that case. Yeah, more systemic types of treatments, not just a surgically remove it or radiate. Because I've had people ask me that, well, can't they just surgically remove what's in your lungs and can't they just radiate what's in your lungs? Well, probably not because it's it got there through some other means and we don't know where those where that is at this point. So it could be anywhere, right? Exactly. Okay. So, um, all right, well, how does immune therapy well, first off, what is immune therapy? I know you touched on it in the very very beginning, but let's let's talk about it because so much has changed, and you know, I'd love to kind of hear what's what's evolved in all of that. Well, uh, it turns out that we have this very sophisticated uh, system within our body of different types of cells, uh, immune cells, that can find. Infections, it can find uh, viruses or bacteria and kill them and get rid of them and cleanse you of infections that you caught um, through your environment. But it, lo and behold, there's just as many immune cells in your body that have grown up for the single purpose of getting rid of cancer. So your body has its own defenses against cancer. What immune therapy is are medicines that doctors and researchers have made to stimulate or to turn on those very specific immune cells that you have in your own body in order to kill the cancer. So what these drugs do is they really kind of gently nudge your own body to uh, identify the cancer and to eliminate it. Uh, They're very effective. Uh, They're perhaps a little bit 
less side effects as uh, chemotherapy, but um, we should talk a little bit about that too because as everyone who's sick with the flu knows, the immune system is quite powerful and you could have side effects related to the immune system, so we have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's sense. true. Yeah. So also when you have, if a person has, um, okay, like for with me, and we're going to talk about my situation later just because it's a good example and I'm not afraid to talk about it on the air, but when a person has a genetic mutation, you know, like we talk about BRCA1, BRCA2 gene mutations, everybody has BRCA1 genes, everybody has BRCA2 genes, it's just, are they broken or not? And in my case, I have two gene mutations, not those, but does that, does that affect the body's ability to fight this through my own immune system? I mean, aren't those genes part of the immune system? And if they're broken, that that's, they don't stop it as as readily? I'm, I'm not sure how that part works. Well, um, actually, when you look at your cancer and you see the mistakes and the mutations in the cancer, those are not found in your healthy cells because your cancer has built, accumulated all of these mistakes or mutations in its DNA over time, and that's what made it turn into cancer. But if you look at the healthy cells, those healthy cells may not have those same mistakes. So... Mm-hmm. What what you're saying is true. If you have an immune system that has, you know, a lot of mistakes in its DNA, maybe those immune cells aren't going to work well, but that's not really the way that it works because the cancer is very different from your own body. It's evolved over time to have features and uh, mistakes in its DNA that are not found in the healthy cells. Now, that being said, I'm glad you brought up the point of a mutation because every single little mistake that a cancer cell has could make that cancer grow faster or do things that it shouldn't do, like spread or metastasize. But it also is a mistake that your immune system might be able to recognize and see. So, for example, if a breast cancer cell has a BRCA mutation, and it's that BRCA mutation is actually potentially visible to the immune system as not being normal, and that might be how the immune cells can actually see the cancer and kill the cancer if oh. you use the right medicines. That's okay. interesting. So yeah. I have a question. So how do our immune cells turn off and why? Well, uh, imagine getting the flu and having a virus and then you develop a fever and the sweats and tired fatigue for a week and all of a sudden you feel better. Uh, what happened there? Well, two things happen. Your whole immune system turns on and signals that there's something wrong, and then those immune cells rev up. They kill the they kill the um, virus. They get rid of the virus, and then what happens? The immune cells turn back off. Oh. Uh, if you did okay. not have that natural process, you would have the flu for the rest of your life. So very much the same thing happens with cancer. You may have immune cells that saw your cancer try the best to kill that cancer, and if the cancer grows faster or if the cancer learns how to hide, then your immune system ultimately has no choice but to turn off anyway, and then the cancer keeps growing. So oh, this is exactly okay. what the immune therapy does. It basically turns those cells back on. So it gives oh. those cells kind of a reboot so that they can potentially kill the cancer at that point. Oh, okay. I love it. Thank so you. One, more, one more quick question before we go out to our first break. and. Is Okay, so you usually hear about immune therapy, especially trials, and Sharon's got some questions about that that we'll ask in the second segment here, but um, sometimes we talk about um, immune therapy only in relationship to 
treating metastatic cancer, if we used immune therapy in early stage cancer and turn it on earlier, can we see better success? Are they doing that or is it just not something? I think the earlier, the earlier you harness your own body defense, the better, honestly. And we know that already. This is proven because if we treat patients with immune therapy as their first treatment rather than waiting until they're very tired and, um, you know, have less energy, then it works a lot better. And now we have actually a study that isn't even in the news yet, but there was a press release from the company that did the study that said that we use the medicine for metastatic cancer, the new approved immune therapy. We use that for early breast cancer, so women with with new diagnoses, and they did a large study, and it was a positive study. So we are going to be hearing some really exciting news that we could potentially be improving the cure rate of early breast cancer, so lump, oh, you know, women exciting. that have lumps in their breasts, and we'll probably hear that around Christmas time or maybe but right before then, because that's when they're going to show all of the results at the conference. Oh, that's wonderful. wonderful. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Sharon's going to talk to you about clinical trials. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about metastatic disease and uh, clinical trials with Dr. David Page. So, Dr. Page, I know um, you are working a lot with clinical trials. So, tell our audience just kind of what a clinical trial is and why we use them. So, a clinical trial is an opportunity uh, for both the doctor and the patient. From the perspective of the doctor, we may have a very good idea that a new type of medicine might perform better, help more patients than the standard medicine. And the most common type of trial is basically saying, well, let's compare the two. Let's give some patients the best standard medicines that we have that are already approved and out there, and then let's try to improve upon that. So maybe that would mean substituting one medicine for the uh, for a newer medicine, or sometimes we just add the newer medicine to the standard. And that's really the approach that doctors take to prove it, that a new medicine is going to help patients. And you, you have to prove it because there's equal chance that a new medicine might not help and that maybe you're getting a lot of side effects and, and, you know, extra symptoms related to the treatment and it's not helping anymore. So you need to do those trials. Thanks. Now, from the patient's perspective, it's it's similar but different. Well, for the patient, you want to do the best by yourself to have, you know, the best chance to cure your cancer or the best chance to help, um, you know, shrink the cancer if it's metastatic. And my recommendation to all patients is you seek out trials because by definition, we do not do trials unless we strongly believe as doctors and as scientists that it's going to actually do better than the standard. So there's actually ethical um, requirement. The government monitors to make sure that every single clinical trial done in the United States is more likely to be better than the standard than worse. So if I was a patient, you sign me up for a clinical trial because I'll know with, with, with 100% certainty that there's a chance it could be even better than the standard. Right, right. And so I think, I don't know where this came from, but years ago it seems like there used to be conversation around, you know, the whole placebo thing and, you know, not really getting the right treatment and that sort of thing. So you're always going to get at least standard of care, if I understand correctly, right? That's true. And now there may be a placebo trial, but the only time there's a trial where there's a chance you get nothing is if the standard is nothing. So if if the, the best thing to do for the patient is to do nothing, then you might go on a trial where you get nothing. Okay. Uh, but you you would, you know, be informed of that before you sign up for the trial. So let's say, for example, you know, you finish all of your surgery to cure breast cancer, you get all your radiation, you get all your chemo, and the standard is for you to stop taking medicines and, to, you know, get back to being survivor. It, there might be a trial where you get randomized to either get nothing or to get something else on top of that. So, yeah, there are a lot of trials where you can get nothing versus something, but it's going to still be beneficial for you. I see. That makes perfectly good sense. Just using, like, my example, when I went into the the first trial that I did with you – the choice. I mean, everybody was going to get the standard of care, which in in this case I think was Vasildex or something at that time. And then the mm-hmm. question would be, 
which is the random part, do I also get immune therapy with it? And so I randomized into getting immune therapy along with the Fazlodex. But either way, I was going to get Fazlodex, which is a treatment for estrogen-positive breast cancer. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that so, makes sense. So then that that kind of that's where the it's not a it's not a double blind where I don't know if I'm getting the actual immune therapy or not. I'll know if I am. It's not like, well, you might be getting immune therapy, but you might also be getting placebo. It wasn't anything well, like that. You just brought up a different concept, which is blinding. And blinding yeah. means that you don't know what you're getting. And there are some trials where you're told you could get this or that and you're not told which one it is. Oh. So your trial was not blinded, but some of them are, and there's pros and cons with blinding. So sometimes patients will actually, um, uh, they might feel better when they're told that they get a medicine. So if I, for example, what if we're doing a trial to treat pain, and I say, oh, I'm giving you this new medicine, and all of a sudden you feel better. Some of that might be because you were um, appreciating the fact that you got a new medicine and you, you felt better um, internally from, you know, your emotions made you feel better. We all know that emotions and pain are very tightly connected. Yes. So in order to do that kind of research, sometimes you have to blind and you have to say to the patient, well, you may be getting nothing, you may be getting the old medicine or the new medicine, you don't even know which one you're getting. Right. Okay. So, but it has a different purpose in that kind of a situation. So that makes sense. Right. So we don't blind unless there's a really good reason, because we know that that kind of freaks people out. It would freak me <laughs> out too, to not know what you're getting. But So if there's yeah. like a specific reason why you do it, then the trial will do it. Okay, that makes sense. So what are the risks around doing a clinical trial? Well, I think the risks of anything in life, uh, there's always a risk. There's the good and the bad. So in the setting of taking a new medicine on a trial, well, the benefit is it could help treat the cancer better, and the risk is that it could actually have more side effects or it could not help at all with the cancer. So if the medicine doesn't work at all, then you're basically having to deal with taking more medicines for no reason. So I think that's the biggest risk, actually. Um, you know, sometimes there's a risk that a, a medicine will make the cancer grow faster. I barely have ever seen that. And, you know, that risk is kind of few and far between. So I, when I think of risk, I think more of the side effects. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And I know there's several levels of trials. Isn't there like stage one, stage two, stage three type of trials? Yeah. So, well, we use some um, different words, but I think the word that's most common is phase one. Okay. Um, phase one. Okay. So in order to get a drug um, to prove that it helps patients and uh, so that the government will approve it so that you can receive it off a clinical trial, you have to do phase one, two, and three. Phase one trial is when you treat the very first patients with the medicine. It's a new medicine, and you don't even know what dose is the best for the patient. So in those trials, every patient that's put on might get a different dose, and you know maybe a higher dose is better but maybe a higher dose has more side effects, and you have to kind of hit the right balance. Mm -hmm. So that's phase one. Then when you do phase two and phase three, those are bigger and bigger studies where you're looking more to prove that the medicine works better than the standard. So in order to, for example, show that 
Faslidex plus immune therapy is better than just the Faslidex, you might have to enroll, you know, two, three hundred patients and look and see how much the tumor shrank in each of those, you know, the patients that got one versus the other and compare it. So that's a phase two, phase three study. And once you can show beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's helping more women or it's or it's helping women more, uh, then the companies will apply for the FDA to approve it. And it takes a long time. You know, this, mm-hmm. these medicines might take five or six hundred or a thousand patients to go on trials, and it might take five to ten years to do all that. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's kind of, I, I remember um, when uh, Herceptin was going through that trial process, and they even created a movie about it, and the whole <laughs> night, I mean, you know, it was interesting, because, you know, from from a, a layperson who's not involved in that sort of thing, it is an interesting process, and how, I mean, some of these drugs can literally save people's lives. And so it's uh, an amazing um, opportunity. Um, But why would a person opt for a trial rather than standard of care? I mean, I know my reasoning, but uh, why would you say a patient might do that? Well, you know, I think that in many cases, um, the standard of care is helpful, but it's not perfect. So, I think in the situation of like early stage breast cancer, your doctor might say, well, if I give you all the standard treatments, I can cure you 90% of the time. Right. And then the main reason for going on a trial is, well, your doctor might say, well, then there's a new medicine that you take for another year. And our goal with this trial is to show that we can cure 95% of women in your shoes instead of 90. So I think that's a pretty straightforward reason why you should go on the trial because there's a shot of increasing the cure rate. Now, with the metastatic cancer, it's the same, you know, the same concept applies. Well, you're not necessarily able to cure that many patients with metastatic cancer, but why don't you say, well, uh, you know, the average medicine will shrink your tumor 40% of the time or 50% of the time, and we want to improve that to 70% of the time. So that's why I would do that trial, because I don't want to settle for 40% ever. I would Mm -hmm. want to go for the gold. So I think if you if you have it within you to do a trial, and if there's trials available where you live, and I think this is an important point, if you are willing to put in extra effort to to satisfy all of the requirements of the trial, then I think it's worth doing it. And there are there are several requirements. I I do remember all that. <laughs> so. Yeah. So Why don't how much more I think you should tell it? them? Yeah. How much more work is it? For okay, well, there's the patient. Yeah, there's a lot of testing that you have to do ahead of time. You know, kind of like screening and baseline uh, scans. You get scanned every. In, in my case, I got scanned every six weeks instead of every twelve weeks. So you have to be, you know, willing to do that. You have to keep track of every pill that goes in your mouth, basically, that has anything to do with the trial. Um, there's just a lot of, of tracking and appointments, more appointments than normal. Lots of labs, right? I mean, I remember the first time I came in to have my labs drawn, I think they drew 13 vials of, because there's wow. the ones that the trial requires, and then there's the regular ones that, you know, they pull every time you come in just to test your blood levels and stuff. So, 
I remember, and, and I remember you, Dr. Page, saying to me, um, it's a lot more work for you. And if we're going to do this, you have to be willing to make those extra efforts. And, you know, in your case, and it, what we talked about was going for the gold because, you know, this is my fifth time through and the chances of getting a, a cure on this are pretty slim. But if we could get, like you said, a 70% reduction in the tumor size versus a 40% or whatever, then it's it's worth doing. And so, yes, I, I said yes to all that. And I'm glad I did it, even though I didn't quite have the the success we were looking for. Um, I, at least we know we tried it. And Dr. Page, one of the things, I just want to say this, that we, we did go from one phase of the trial to the next. We had to kind of bump it up a little bit. But what I loved is when the second part of this also didn't have the result, you said to me, and you could have been very, your ego could have gotten in the way and you could have said, you know what, let's just hang in there and see if we can, you know, if it, if it works. And that was an option. But you said, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather go with something we know has success. And I loved that you were so willing to just kind of take a step back and say what's best for you right now. Right. And, um, and I appreciated that more than I can ever tell you. You know, we gave it, we gave it a, a good college try, as they say, you know. Right, and right. went through all the steps and everything. And so now I'm, I am on the standard of care, um, which is, I mean, there's several, but I'm on one of them. And... Um, you know, thing it's we'll see we'll see what happens in the next scan that I have. Yeah, exactly. So with all these extra appointments and procedures and drugs and things, so who pays for all that? <laughs> well, um, it's a lot of money for one, uh, and I think everyone is shocked when they hear it. And I'll give you the estimate uh, for every single patient that goes on a trial. On average these days, it's about $40,000 of extra cost, and that's not even including how much the medicines that you're getting cost. Wow. So who pays for that? Generally speaking, in this day and age, it is the drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies that are paying for it because of the enormous expense associated with doing research. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's good and it's bad. Everyone has a little bit of skepticism about the pharmaceutical companies because we know that they make money. But at the same time, the the pace of research and the, uh, the progress that we're making is so profound because of their willingness to pay this type of money in order to advance uh, science and to produce new medicines. So I really respect pharmaceutical companies. I also respect the reality that they're profit-making as well. Um, but just like everything in life, there's the good and the bad, and you, you have to make the most of life um, and, and think of it from both perspectives. Yeah, uh, sometimes, sometimes government pays. I wish government paid more for research, but the amount of research that's funded by government now is dwindling, whereas the, the amount of research paid for by companies um, is increasing, actually. Okay, that makes sense. Well, let me just ask you one more question before we go go out on break again. Um, how do you get your patients, or how do they get selected for a particular trial? Well, for me in particular, every single one of my patients, I really scour through options that are available here and elsewhere to make sure that they get the best opportunity that's for them specifically. So, um, 
for clinical trials that I'm doing here, I match the patient to the best trial for them, and we inevitably will, you know, finish the trials that we propose to do. But there, there are some scenarios where the patients might not have options for trials. They may not be in an area of the country where there's a lot of trials available. So for those patients, you might actually have to seek out the trials yourself um, or have your oncologist look abroad. So in that case, you can go online. There's a government website called clinicaltrials.gov that has every single clinical trial in the world or in the country listed there in a search engine. So you can type in your type of breast cancer, even where you live and uh, what you're looking for, and you can search out for clinical trials. Oh, that's a great resource. Thank you for that. Well, listen, we're going to go ahead and go on out to break, and we'll come back for our last segment. And I, this is such great information. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states giving you the freedom to love to dream to dance like no one is watching regions blue cross blue shield live fearless thank you for listening today breast friends needs your support We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about metastatic disease and clinical trials with Dr. David Page. So, Becky, I think you had a question um, at the end of the last segment there. I I did. Um, So, basically, Dr. Page, I know that the purpose of these trials is to see what kind of success that they're going to have so that they can hopefully become the new standard of care. And I know that just recently happened with triple negative breast cancer with immune therapy trials. They, at some point, they finally released it as the standard of care because they had a certain amount of success with that in, in treating it. Can you talk to us about what does that success look like? What, you know, what does it take to get something to move from only available in trial to standard of care? 
Yeah, so I think what you're describing is that one of these immunotherapies, the new medicines that turn on your immune system, has recently been approved for triple negative breast cancer for stage four. So that means when the cancer has metastasized or spread to other parts of the body. And this was a long time coming. It took uh, about maybe six or seven years of clinical trials in breast cancer to achieve that. And... Uh, it is uh, now approved to be given in combination with chemotherapy um, because that was the, the trial that was positive. And what the trial looked like was women that just found out their cancer had metastasized um, were enrolled to get the standard, which is chemotherapy, and then half of those women were also given the immune therapy. Uh, and they compared those two groups of patients. And the way that they defined success to make sure that the immune therapy was helping more than hurting was they wanted to see two things, is whether the patients um, could have the tumors shrink for a longer period of time. So that means that if the tumor, for example, you keep getting scans every six to eight weeks and they keep shrinking, 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 how long does that go for? So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was, well, what about the woman's longevity? So is she able to live a quality of life and enjoy more time on this earth with her friends and family? I think that's probably the number one most important thing. Could we prolong life for women in this situation? And the answer to that was yes for both. So the immune therapy helped for both. Um, the number of time extra that the immune therapy made the tumors shrink was only two months, actually, but that was the average, which means that there were some patients where it didn't help them, actually, and then there were a lot of patients where it helped, but the average was two months. Now, what was interesting, though, is even though that was a relatively small difference, when you looked at how long the women lived, it was much more, it was, it was like eight or nine months difference. So what does that mean? The average person that is eligible to get this treatment now, because they got this, the second medicine, the immune therapy medicine, they lived on average eight longer months. Um, averages are deceiving. I have women on this trial that we put on this exact trial that we participated in who have been out now for four years and their cancer is no longer evident on their scans. Wow. Um, so for those women, it's a lot more than seven months. Now, the flip side is some patients didn't have their tumors um, slow down at all, and they didn't benefit at all because it's never 100%. So when you average everything, it's seven to nine months. That's yeah. what made the FDA say, yes, this is d- totally worth it. Right. You know, right. I have a little a little thing I like to share about averages, and you're right. Averages are very deceptive. If I have a four foot person and a six foot person together, their average height is what five, five feet. Five foot, mm-hmm. right? Which one of them is five feet? Yeah, exactly. neither one. <laughs> but it's a hundred percent correct statistic. It's that would be their average height, and it, and it's completely wrong. <laughs> so, so yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. I just you know I know that's the goal of it, and. But and it, it does take a lot of work to make that happen. So I have a question too. You know, are any of these um, clinical trials um, um, dealing with like nutrition? You know, kinds of things in that 
like using immunotherapy with better nutrition, for instance, or have, have any discussion been on? I've, I've just read Radical Remission not too long ago, and so I'm like, ah, I wonder if that's being even considered. I think that nutrition is integral. It's so important. Uh, the question, though, is how do you best prove that a certain way of having nutrition is going to improve how well these patients do? Exactly. And nutrition is such a personal thing, and to really um, dictate that a person eat a certain thing to, you know, the exactitude that you would need to do a study is very difficult. Okay. So what I can say is there's a lot of research in this field. Um, they're not big trials that, you know, put half the women on a nutritional diet and the other half not, but they have trials that show that, for example, people that eat a low-fat diet with a lot of grains and vegetables, they actually, if you follow them over time, they live longer when they have a breast cancer diagnosis. There was a, a tri- the biggest trial was with 40,000 women over like 30 years. Wow. And it was a low-fat, high-grain diet and versus just n- no intervention at all. And the women that were on that intervention, they lost weight for one. So you know that they were actually following the directions. And the second thing is that their, uh, their longevity or how long they live with a cancer diagnosis was substantially longer. So the answer to your question is yes, but I also agree with you that there's a lot fewer of those studies. And, there, you know, more of the research being done, like I said, is with companies that have um, new drugs that could lead to, to profit, for better or for worse. That's the way that it is. Yeah, exactly. Well, And that makes sense. So, obviously, in the past, it seems like most of the... Um, Clinical trials have been on estrogen-positive kind of tumors because, of course, that's about, what, 70% of the breast cancers is an estrogen-positive kind of thing. But it looks like we're really getting a lot more with triple negative and HER2 and maybe even inflammatory breast cancer. Are there any specific ones you want to talk about there? Well, I would say that there is a lot of research going on in each of those areas, but they're very different. The The types of medicines that help the most are radically different for these cancers. And it really um, is a good example of how every person's cancer is unique, even though it, it comes from the breast. Those three different types of cancers that you just described are very different from one another. So what you want to do is cut is customize the treatment to the patient's tumor. Now, the triple negative is more on the news lately because these immune therapies were just approved, and it works really well for triple negative. We're just starting to see if it works um, for the other types of breast cancer. Now, on the other hand, if you have HER2-positive breast cancer, there is a whole handful or dozens and dozens of new medicines that, you know, target that HER2 component of the breast cancer very specifically. So I'd argue that there isn't less research. It's just completely different type of medicine. Uh, okay, that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. yeah. And I've also noticed, like, um, things that have worked for ovarian cancer or lung cancer, they're also now starting to... Um, then look at breast cancer because they had good results in a different kind of cancer. Are you seeing that a lot too? Yes, and that really boils down to the fact that 
we have medicines that we know achieve certain things, and it, it just because it was developed for one cancer doesn't mean it may not help another. And the immune therapy is a good example. So all of the medicines that we're studying and seeing approved for breast cancer for immune therapy were actually developed for skin cancer. Oh, Why were they developed for skin cancer? Well, it was because in skin cancer, chemotherapy does not help that much at all. So they wanted to try something new, um, and they developed the immune therapies. Now, what does immune therapy do? It doesn't treat the cancer. It turns on your own immune system. So because of the way that it works, they asked the question, well, why don't we try it with other cancers? Lo and behold, it helps almost every single type of cancer. It's been helpful to some degree. So we have to think outside the box now. We can't, uh, the, these oncology doctors like myself, I can't um, silo myself to one type of cancer because I acknowledge that these weapons could be useful for a whole type, you know, variety of types of cancers. That's Makes so great. Sense. Yeah. You know, I, I have one burning question I've been wanting to ask. It wasn't on my list, so I've been thinking maybe it'll just come up. But why does immune therapy work so much better for some people than it does for others? Well, I, I think the answer to that is we have just the first immune therapies that have been developed. And if you take a look at the immune system, there are literally dozens and dozens of types of immune cells that each do a different thing to kill cancer. And it, my analogy that I like to think of is the armed forces in the United States. How do we defend our nation? Do we do one thing or do we have, you know, five different divisions of the armed forces, the Navy, the Army, the, you know, the the merchant marine, there's all of these different factors that protect the country. Now, if I developed something that only helped the Army or one specific, you know, section of the Army, is that going to be the only thing I could do? No. There, there's probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways to turn on your immune system. And we only have one or two of those that we've discovered, and we're just starting to discover all the other ones now. So what we're going to have to do is take a very close look at a woman's cancer and what's making that immune system not kill the cancer. Is there something about, you know, this cell or that cell, or does, you know, does this person's cancer have a specific behavior? And then we're going to have to choose the right immune therapy for the right patient. I think we're about 15 to 20 years off. Um, I know that we're, we're getting closer because the most recent study, they looked at how many, how many new drugs there are. So do you want to guess how many new immune therapies are being studied in, in humans now? Oh, no clue. Hundreds? There's three, about 3,000. Wow. 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 So, that's amazing. Yes, so, you mean there's still hope for me? <laughs> Absolutely. There's still we hope have that we're going to find one approved. that works for me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, now, it's, look at the flip side, though. If you have 3,000 drugs that do all different things, how much effort is it going to be for a doctor to learn which one is best for which patient? Boy, so, that, that's going to be the biggest you know, hurdle that we're going to have to face is we've got too many uh -huh. drugs and we don't know which one's the best. Wow. That makes sense. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question for you. And, and it kind of, you just gave us a glimpse of that, but what's in the future for trials and what personally excites you, Dr. Page, the most about what's coming up? So I definitely, definitely what's in the future is the use of computer science and artificial intelligence 
to look at a person's cancer and look at that person as a whole and then look at all the medicines we have and to find the right combination of medicines for that patient using artificial intelligence. So using algorithms, using statistics and uh, mathematical models, it's going to get to the point where oncologists are going to have to understand how to program a computer and how to, uh, you know, do math in order to help best treat his or her patient. So it's funny that you brought up that I'm going back to school. That's what I'm going back to school for is to (laughs) learn how to use computers to, you know, make decisions for patients and how to analyze your immune system with the computer rather than just, you know, using uh, basic things in the the, uh, office. Well, you are you are truly, truly an amazing person. You're an incredible doctor. You are the most compassionate person I think I've ever met. And I just I really just appreciate you so much. Is there we're kinda of, we're coming up to the end here. Are there any last thoughts you want to share with our audience? No, I think that we hit so much good stuff, and of course things are complicated and I, I guess my message to patients is that share your enthusiasm with your doctor if you want to do trials because, you know, it's it's extra work, but I think it's worth it. it. Not only can you help future patients, but you can help yourself as well. And um, sometimes extra work isn't a bad thing. It might actually empower you to feel that you're doing everything that you can mm-hmm. um, in helping others in the process. Well, that's that's really good advice. So thank you very much. We are out of time. And I just I'm so thankful that you agreed to do this show with us. I know it was hard to <laughs> to get our schedules coordinated because you're a very, very busy person, but um, really appreciate you taking the time. So for all of our listeners out there, you know, if this is something that you think would be of interest to any of your friends, please tell people in your own circle about this radio show. Get them to tune in. We're we're actually doing very well. I think we're on schedule to hit about 300,000 on-demand listens this year um, to our different shows globally, and it's very exciting. Um, If you like our show a lot, and we hope you do, and if you're listening many times, we assume you do, we really could use your help to keep this show going. So please consider visiting breastfriends.org, and there's a, a blue donate button on there somewhere. Right now it's at the top, but we're redesigning our page. I can't tell you where it will be by the time it comes out. But but there is a, a donate button. So please consider going online and making a donation to Breast Friends in support of this program just, just so we can keep it going for as long as possible. So we're very excited. Again, visit our, our page also for ideas on how to help support a loved one. If you need any support from Breast Friends, our phone numbers and emails are on there. So please make sure you do that. And we will be back next week. Until then, remember, there is always hope and we're here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.